This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader the station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast with me, Vas Christodoulou. From Jed Bartlett to Serena Mayer, fictional US presidents live in our imaginations as vividly as their real-life counterparts. But only one has the authenticity of being created by a genuine occupant of the Oval Office. Drawing on his first-hand knowledge of life in the White House, Bill Clinton teamed up with one of the world's best-known and best-selling authors, James Patterson, to write 2018's The President is Missing. They're back with a new novel, The President's Daughter, and on the eve of the G7 summit two weeks ago, they joined Hannah McInnes for a livestream event sharing insights into their creative partnership and the world in 2021. Well, James, I will start with asking you, how did it come about? Did you just call up a former president and say, you know, how about teaming up and and writing a book? Or or did he call you? Uh, We actually, we have the same lawyer, agent, and the president is a big, big reader of of a lot of things. I mean, there's almost no book he hasn't. You bring it up and I've already read it. But he also reads some mysteries. And um, our agent lawyer always was trying to encourage him to write a mystery and then he asked, would you like to write uh, one with James Patterson? And then I'll, I'll turn it over to the president. Yeah, and I said, well, of course I would, because I'd learn a lot and I've read thousands of them. So I'd like to figure out how it's done. But I couldn't. I, I said, why would he do it with me? Because, you know, I was it was 2018. Trump was president. And I said, you know, this will be reviewed uh, as a political document because of the circumstances. and." Why would he alienate half of his reader base? <laughs> but if he's willing, I'd love it. I never heard about that alienating my base thing. Oh, my God. Behind me is is the Hudson River. And I grew up up the river about 60 miles, real small town. And I, I continue. I still look through the look at the world through the lens of that small town. So the idea of spending a lot of time with the president, especially President Clinton, was irresistible to me. And it's been, a, you know, one of the real treats of my life. And how does the collaboration work in terms of what role each one of you... It doesn't you- really work that well, but no, go ahead, Mr. President. Oh. <laughs> tell her, tell him about it. <laughs> Jim starts his fiction books the way I always, I tried to start the relatively small number of books I've written. He starts with an outline. And so we agreed on an outline. And then we agreed on the things that I needed to provide in terms of making the thing as realistic as possible. And we did the same thing in both books. And then I'd go off with my homework sheet and fill in the blanks and he would draft the first couple of chapters. And then we just swap drafts back and forth, back and forth all the way to the end. And when as these mysteries inevitably do, if they're any good, you wind up liking some characters more than you expected to. They assume a, mar- a larger role to make the plot fit together, you find things you hadn't thought of, then you have a few more loops to close at the end. And so we just worked through it just the way we did before. And it was wonderful. I loved it. But it's a very different book because the life of a former president is different. But for the first few years when you're out of office, you know everybody that's in. And you also know a lot of people around the world who either like you or don't. So this is really a book, you know, with several strands. It's a story of a former president who 
lost his bid for election, was an accidental president in the first place, is angry because he was replaced by his own vice president in a primary, who was not grateful for having been appointed vice president. And uh, it's a book about how he's trying to help his family and start a new life. And all of a sudden, he gets zapped by his daughter being kidnapped. So it's a story of this incredibly resourceful young woman who's put through hell and comes through it. And as Jim says, it really emerges as the shining hero of the book. Yeah, the daughter the daughter is kind of the, the hero of the whole story. And, you know, if something like this happened in real life, if the prime minister's son or daughter or the president's wife or, was kidnapped, it would be, that's all we would hear about in the news. And when the story was eventually told, everyone would, would want to read it. Well, this is, you can read this story now, because this is, if, if something like this happened, this is how it would happen. So it almost reads like, even though some of the things, it's hard to say actually that anything couldn't happen anymore because based on the last year where we had the Capitol being stormed here and now we have Jeff Bezos going into outer space and, you know, whatever, it's kind of anything can happen. But if certain things happened, as they do in the book, this is how they would happen. So I, and I want to come back very much to that truth at the moment being slightly stranger than fiction idea as well, but mm. When you say this is fiction, ultimately, but as you said, it's a president whose daughter is kidnapped because she loses protection. Is there any of that that um, President Clinton, based on some fears that you had, anything real in that story? And and what did your daughter make of it? Yes, I, I do think it's important to say this character is unique. She is not my daughter or President Bush's daughters or uh, Ivanka Trump or anybody. She's a fictional character. But it's important to understand that basically we all think our first job is to be a parent once we have a child. And you can imagine one of the burdens of being president is that your children are exposed to all these wonderful things. They learn things they couldn't learn any other way. They meet people they couldn't meet any other way. But they also are collateral damage when people are attacking you or when they are more out in the public than you are. So when you're not president anymore and some guy comes along and snatches your daughter because he's mad at you for what you did, it's a terrible dilemma. And it can last a long time. Like one of our characters here is a Chinese intelligence officer who works hard and, you know, gets higher up in the hierarchy, but never gets over his anger that his father was killed in 1999 when the United States, under my orders, bombed what we thought was a security installation in Belgrade, trying to get them out of Kosovo and end the slaughter there. And the building had been turned over to the Chinese embassy. That's factually true. Mm -hmm. So three totally innocent Chinese citizens were killed. There were riots in the streets in China. That sort of thing happened. So what happens if one of these people himself rises to prominence and power and still wants to get even with America? That's a different part of this book. One of the interesting things here in terms of the two books, The President is Missing was about a sitting president and a very serious problem, which we're we're really, uh, it's in the news a lot now, which is cyber terrorism. And this book is about the the emotional side of being president. What's the human being like? I'll give you an example that relates to my experiences with, with the president. Early on, my wife and I went out to dinner with, with Hillary and, and the president. And it was a long dinner. It was wonderful. And we noticed that during the dinner, two or three times, they were holding hands under the table. And that's not the way necessarily people think of a president. And, you know, and, and, but there's the human side. And this new book, The President's Daughter, is about the human side. And, and what could be more human, I mean, tragically human, than, than having uh, uh, one of your loved ones missing and, and feeling that you could do something about it? So this is, this is about the human side of being a president or being a world leader, any world leader. There's a lot of the humanity is in the fact that it's a, a based on a, a post-presidential period rather than actually being uh, in the White House. But you do, there's a lot of, a lot of the action takes place in the White House. And this book, like your previous one, doesn't paint the rosiest picture of modern politics. And that's probably an understatement. Some of the things I picked out, 
Politics sure can screw up a man. The Washington political scene where motives are murky and adversaries disguise themselves within power suits and smooth rhetoric. From Twitter mobs to focus groups, nothing can get done anymore. And then the idea that you have to go through the fires, the double talk and the portrayals to get there. So I'm wondering, Mr. President, this is a fictional presidency. It's set around now. You were there, you know, you left in 2001. Is it, to your mind, always like this, the sort of backstabbing and divisive place that you, you depict in the, in the book? Well, there's always been some of that. And the question is, is there more of it when things are incredibly polarized and you realize that nothing you do will run your core supporters off and that anything you do to anybody else, you can just blame them because they're part of the other. They're them and there's us and them. And I noticed an interesting column that was written a few weeks ago saying that in the contest between belonging and the facts, the facts have no chance because first you have to belong. So if you define your identity as exclusively tribal as opposed to inclusively tribal, then you get more of this. So it goes up and down and up and down over the course of history. And this has been a particularly trying time for us. When you talk about that tribalism and come back, James, to what you mentioned at the beginning, you, you know, you say that the plots in, in the in the fiction are far fetched, and in in some ways they are. But as you said, anything can happen. Does living in this strange age of sort of extremes, where the truth is often stranger than fiction, where reality is is itself far fetched, does that make it harder to write fiction that that can't compete, or is it better because anything goes? <clears throat> Well, one nice thing right now is is that people are reading more than they have in a while. That's one of the only good things about the pandemic. People started reading more. But, you know, back in the 60s, Philip Roth declared, this was during the Nixon period in Vietnam, and he said that the world had gotten so crazy that he could no longer write fiction because he couldn't compete with it. And that was back in the 60s. Eventually, he did start writing fiction again. So I guess this period is a little like that. But I don't, I don't find it, you know, as I said, I am, I'm delighted that people are reading more and I'm, I'm happy to go with the flow in terms of the craziness of the world, in, you know, in terms of writing fiction. It's so important to point out, though, that there are people identified with American institutions in this book who are totally on the level, who don't lie, who try to do what's right within the law. I mean, you've got this wonderful Secret Service agent that's uh, the head of the president's detail. He knows that he's not supposed to cover the president's daughter, but he tries to minimize her risk. You have an FBI director who was appointed under our ex-president, who now serves the current president, who's trying to figure out a way to do her duty and do what's right for the country. Not on a political agenda, on basically on basic human decency terms. And uh, so there are a lot of heroes here. I think there. Uh, in terms of being not like all the nightmares and the cartoons that are presented. So you get both. On the other hand, you got the president's husband, who's our chief of staff for most of the book, who uh, he's a power guy. The only thing that matters is whether you win. He's a nasty piece of he's a nasty piece of work. But I I I very much agree. The sort of the Secret Service presidential protection, there are some real heroes in this book. One of the lines that you're um, that Matt Keating says is, what did I and the country ever do to deserve such people? And it feels that the appreciation for those people who give up their lives, put them on the line for the sort of the presidential protection are, are very important. You know, one of the ironies, Anna, and the president could speak to this, is that it's been my experience in dealing with people in Washington, most of them want to do the right thing. They may disagree about what the right thing is, but most of them want to. They just find in this current period that they they can't. They can't go against whatever the party line is. All great contests, given a reasonable parity and ability, are head games. And uh, the, the right has been waging a major head game in America now for more than 40 years. And it's gotten accelerated. Trump was as much the result is the cause of a lot of the chaos in America because there's often great political benefit in driving people nuts and driving them apart. 
One of the interesting things to me was looking at the Brexit campaign in the UK compared to what was happening in America. And I noticed that at least in the beginning, there seemed to be not so much concern about the immigrants from South Asia, many of whom were Muslim, because they were part of the empire. So, and that was a part of the self-identity of a lot of people who were for Brexit. They were more concerned about Polish carpenters coming to, and electricians coming to small towns in England and in their imagining displacing local workers and things. So I, I, it's a complicated thing, but a lot of it is the war that goes on in everyone's mind about their identity. Who am I and how do I relate to other people? And if you can explode it in just the right way, it's a great opportunity for people who want power to seize it. I mean, you, you mentioned Brexit in the UK. I mean, this book is based on a former president who, who is sort of trying to work out how to be, how to have left the most important office in the world and all the power that comes with that. At one point, he says, I'm just the former POTUS with no power, no influence, no responsibilities. And I wonder how it is to adjust to life after being such a powerful person. And also, you know, would you want to be there now? Would you want to be landing in Cornwall on Air Force One today and meeting Boris Johnson and still back in the thick of it? Well, first of all, it's... Um there are lots of times if you like the president, and I like President Biden a lot, and I think he's doing a really good job. But if you like it, you think, gosh, that's it would be a good time to do that. But you just get eight years under our system, and I was the right person for the eight years I was there. The kind of experiences and life experiences and skills I had worked out, I think, pretty well for America. And we had the only period of broadly shared prosperity in uh, the last 50 years in America. So I was grateful. And I think the important thing is when you leave office, you shouldn't spend a day wishing you could do something you can't do anymore. Instead, you should say, what can I do now? How can I live in the present and for the future? Now, there come opportunities as time goes on to do things because you were a former president. Usually when you're asked to do it, like to both President Bush and President Obama asked, me to help with disasters uh, around the world where America wanted to have a presence. And on two occasions, I did it with the first President Bush. After our tough campaign in 92, we became very close friends. And that's a good thing. It, it was a good look to present to the rest of the world that two people who could run against each other, disagree on much, still believed in core values and humanity and wanted to do the right thing. So I have enjoyed that. But my foundation has been my life for 20 years. I've done that two and a half times as long as I did the White House. And I think life is fleeting. And it's a great mistake to spend it buried in the past. On the other hand, it's a terrible mistake to ignore the facts of the past. That's what we've got now. We've got a lot of people uh, on more than one side trying to rewrite history to shoehorn it into current reality. That's a normal human Thing. So you can best serve, I think, if you're asked to serve, you do it. What happened here is there's a brief period after you're president when your family, your friends, your loved ones, and your ability to function going forward is all caught up in what people think happened when you were president or what actually did happen. You know, Hannah, if you think about it, a lot of us at different times in our lives, we're former something. And all of a sudden, we have to go and start a new life. So a lot of people can identify with this. For a lot of kids, they've been students all their lives, and all of a sudden, they're not a student anymore, and they have to become something else. And that's a, that's a hard transition. I wrote a book about military vets coming back to the United States, and they had a mission. They were in Afghanistan, wherever, Iraq, whatever, and all of a sudden, they had to get a new mission. You retire. You have to get a new mission. The kids leave the house. You have to get a new mission. So a lot of us, you know, we, we go through this thing. And, and, and it's a very common thing. And I think it's one of the reasons that people like this book and can identify with the president's situation. And, okay, he did this thing. He was the most powerful person in the world for four years. And now what? Mm. What, James, did you find most surprising, you know, that came back to you in terms of insights um, from the president when he was looking through the sort of story as you described at the beginning? What, what most 
um, surprised you about the information that he provided? Not necessarily surprised, but but just this continuing thing about what it is like to to have been the president and to be living this new life and to be, you know, I'm, I, I've been involved to some extent with, with the President's Foundation. Also, um, you know, some of the barbs that are thrown around in the, these days at people is just kind of stunning to me because, uh, uh, you know, at times I would be out there in the battlefield and they wouldn't bother to shoot at me, but, uh, you know, but you're out there and it's like, wow, there's some nasty stuff floating around here. It's It's like... It's it's not it's not human. It's just a terrible way to for for people to live their lives. There's a, I don't know I, I don't know what drives people sometimes to be so mean spirited, but I guess it's money. Uh, well, Mr. President, going back to that um, idea of you said obviously of course you you accept you had your time, but if you were I know that you similarly have um, Irish roots like President Biden. He's landed as we said. Before we began this in in Cornwall today, what would be your message for Boris Johnson if you were in those shoes? I would say, first of all, please do whatever you can to minimize the economic disruption to your people and to the country. And if you want the UK to hold together, don't let the Irish peace process fall apart on the North-South agreement going sour or on the, the politics of the DUP and Northern Ireland, which is increasingly disconnected with what's really going on among the voters there. You wanted your Brexit, you got it. Now it's time for you to hold things together and to adopt new ways of working with Europe and to have a constructive relationship with us because the world is interdependent. And you you can tear down all the walls you want, or you can put up all the walls you want, but we can't stop the interdependence. The job we're all having today, every one of us in our own way, is to define the terms of our interdependence. And will we define it in positive or negative terms? How do you prepare for the worst in life and work for the best? And lately, we've been spending a lot of time talking about the worst and too little time working for the best, in my opinion. And so, That's what I would say if I were here. I'd say the United States values our relationship with you. We have so many ties from our very beginning. And let's strengthen the ties that bind and manage the honest differences. And talking about sort of differences and similarly, as I say, going back a little bit to to one of the things you mentioned before, James, in this book, this former president, Matt Keating, albeit a little reluctantly accepted his election defeat. He's settling into life before the kidnap of his daughter uh, in rural New Hampshire. He's brush cutting to keep his mind occupied. You mentioned this strange world now. You mentioned the insurrection. Are are readers to draw a comparison here with the sort of relative integrity and calm and humanity of that settling down uh, as opposed to what we saw in recent months, or is there there's no comparison to be drawn? What in? happened in recent months? We, we we had already finished the book, so we had no. I mean, you know, I I think the president felt that he he could have predicted something like that possibly happening. Uh, I wasn't shocked, but well, I was shocked on some level just because it's a shocking thing, but not not totally surprised. I, I think, you know, one of the things, and this is true of the two presidents in our two books, two different presidents, and I think we made a conscious effort to create individuals who who you could admire on some level, who were good people. And and, and the president spoke about, uh, you know, President Biden. And whatever your politics are in the States, you, you should be able to go, he's a good person. You may disagree or you may agree with the policies, but it's a good person. And I think that's that's a useful, that's a starting point, I think, for, for leadership. And it certainly wasn't in our two books. You mentioned before the Chinese diplomat, who's a very important character in, in the book, and you don't need to sort of have any, be a kind of forensic analysis to, to figure out that the Chinese are not portrayed with sweetness and light here in the book. Was that what you wanted to bring across, this sort of idea that they were a, a worrying presence with, with sort of access to gadgets and extraordinary surveillance? And generally in the book, they're, they're not up to much good. You say not sympathetic, which is, which is probably accurate. On the other hand, um, when you read the book, you, you do get a sense for 
how this person became the person that he is and what happened to him to, to create him that way. And one of the things that, that the president does and makes me better at what I do is he will keep pushing to make these characters as real and complex as possible. So uh, uh, the, the Jane is, is not, he's a, he's a human being, whether we you know, totally buy him or not, or, wh or what he's done, but, but we understand kind of how he got there. Talking about characters being as, as real and as believable as possible. The other thing that um, comes across in the book, you mentioned the daughter, Mel. The, the, there are some seriously brilliant women in this book. Um, I think Mel refers to herself as a, as a badass woman. I mean, was that something you were intending to do, James, to sort of try and write these strong female characters? There's a, there's a character called Claire. We talked about these brilliant um, I don't think about trying to write a strong female character. I, I think a lot of women are incredibly strong. My, uh, you know, I grew up in a house full of women, uh, mother, grandmother, three sisters, female cat, and the, uh, the cousin or whatever, it's still in my head. So I don't, I, I'm not trying to create strong women. I mean, I, they're just there. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, the president, he can speak, you know, but he lives with the, uh, an incredibly strong woman and, and, and his daughter is an incredibly strong woman. So it's not like we're out there trying to create something that doesn't exist. Yeah, I do think uh, what I like about this book and I liked it about the first book is that we were trying to remind people that if you have equal opportunities, you get better results. That is you, we, it's crazy to deny women the opportunity to contribute in a way that fulfills their personal dreams, but also makes society stronger. And we also try to remind people that women are not always perfect if you empower them, but at least they're not victims, they're empowered. And I think that we should be on a track working toward empowerment and reconciliation across gender lines, blurred or clear, no matter what else we're doing. Because you just get better results when you have more diverse decision makers. You're more likely to make fewer mistakes and more likely to make good moves. And it's also the morally right thing to do, to not box anyone out of a future because of their gender. Well, the president, in, in, the, the, the actual president, of course, in the book is uh, Barnes, President Barnes. Um, the president who defeated uh, Matt Keating, and she sort of says at one point, we, we've described her husband, who who was a bit of a, a dubious character. She says at one point, the House leadership, China, Russia, Iran, a good part of the news media and the internet and a very large part of the country still can't get over calling the leader of the free world, Madam. Do you think by writing this, was there a hope that this day might come? It's pretty extraordinary that we're still waiting, that that is still just fiction. I mean, it is ridiculous. The UK had Maggie Thatcher a long time ago. And if we didn't have the Electoral College, it would have already happened in America. So, you know, it's just a matter of time. It's going to happen. But um, right now, it got sidetracked because of the, largely because of forces beyond almost anybody's control. The, the 2016 election was truly stranger than any fiction I've ever read. It was like being lost in a funhouse. So the uh, it'll happen. Meanwhile, those of us who write about such matters should remind people that, first of all, women don't have to be perfect to be good and that they belong on the scene. You know, we've got a gay secretary of transportation and he's done a hell of a job, I think. We just need to get over all ourselves and our categories and start thinking about developing human potential. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that people don't talk about that much here, you know, this country elected a black president. That's, I mean, how many countries could do that? It, that happened here. That's, that says something about this country and the, and the possibilities. And as I said, I think it's just a fluke that a woman has. I mean, there's, there's some reasons, but it, it should have happened, could have happened, and uh, it, it will happen. I, and I think, you know, maybe even the next election. And I well, don't want to minimize, however, the fact that there there are still some people that, at least subconsciously, uh, in some cultures, uh, yeah. have a hard time seeing women in executive as opposed to parliamentary positions. Yeah. And if you become prime minister, it's because 
your colleagues, the people that know you, make you leader. And so if you're just having a straight out election, it becomes a little more challenging. But I think it's I'm with Jim. It's going to happen. And we just need to keep lifting up examples, proving that there's nothing to worry about here. It's something it's an opportunity to seize, not something to shrink from. I wrote a best-selling novel about a woman pope. Well, Beat that one. <laughs> I've heard you um, in uh, your previous one UK interview. I think we are your second, and we're incredibly uh, honoured and flattered to be that. But you were asked about a top-secret collaboration that you're perhaps working on next. I don't know if it's both of you together. Uh, and you mentioned that this might be... I know you were being facetious. You mentioned Putin as a as a as a possibility as a collaborator. I'm wondering that's obviously not quite the case. But why would he be a good one? And also, perhaps- that was more in the area of kind of fictional, crazy, whatever. But I mean, look, I mean, my God, uh, the secrets that that he has uh, in terms of a, of a of a of a novel or nonfiction. Oh my, you know, it's stunning possibilities. That's all. It's just It's a crazy idea, but an interesting one to, to talk about. President Clinton, you you um, were mentioning in that interview that I'm referring to that the reason um, he would be a good collaborator, Putin, is because uh, he, he's straight down the line. You know, he says he says it as it is, like many of the characters in this book. Yeah, I found in private that if I were straightforward with him, he'd be straightforward with me. Now, I'd have a hard time writing a book with him now because I don't approve of going to the UK and poisoning your enemies and a lot of the things that he's done. But it's not like he played around about it. I mean, he publicly said in Helsinki that he actively intervened in the election in 2016, and he oversaw what was happening with the Russians trying to use massive email data that they had to discourage Americans who voted for somebody other than Hillary in the primary from voting. I mean, he said that. He was proud of it. And uh, I find if if you're a leader, if someone will at least be straight with you in private, then you can figure out what's best for the people you represent and try to do it. But I think you have to be careful cooperating with people who believe that any means are acceptable to achieve your objectives. But if you're president and he's president of Russia, should we talk to the Russians? Absolutely. Am I glad Joe Biden's meeting with Vladimir Putin? I am. And I think that, uh, you know, your job is to do what's best for the American people. And the more you know about it, the better and more likely you are to make good decisions. So I He's a fascinating man. I mean, Putin, he loves his country, but his idea of his country is more like 19th century czarist Russia. And he knows that because of the cyber world we live in, Russia with a stagnant or declining population and a natural resource base, which is not a stable way to build a future economy, can punch above its weight as long as they can play in cyberspace as hard as they do. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. Talking about cyberspace, surveillance and this alarming nature of of the level of surveillance and how much can be seen and heard. It it happens a lot during the book. Um, People are having conversations and they're overheard from from miles away. There's a lot of drones used. I mean, did you feel that that was meant to be a force for evil or were we meant to perhaps, you know, should we feel terrified or secure that we're so watched, James? It depends on what side of the camera you're on. (laughs) Both, because, you know, if you look at a lot of uh, our television programs, and I'm sure the same in the UK, I I love a lot of these police programs because you learn a lot about all kinds of things, but a lot of them have a very sophisticated, uh, first thing they do is go see if there were even rudimentary surveillance cameras 
on any buildings anywhere near where like a little convenience store is robbed or a jewelry store is robbed. So it's everywhere. And I think you have a lot of cameras in London. Uh, and I think that after what you went through after 9-11 and the terrorist incidents that occurred on British soil and the ones you tried to stop, it's there. And you have to recognize that it can be very valuable in solving and often preventing crimes, but it is subject to gross abuse and people can lose any legitimate sense of, of privacy they have. That's the, the cutting edge of any new technology, any new development in warfare, anything is, yes, it can be used for good, but it can do a whole lot of damage. That's part of the human dilemma. It's always the how you manage power and limit its exercise is the ultimate test of any civilized country and whether it's becoming more human as it goes along. It's good fodder, of course, for, for thriller and, and crime thrillers, though, isn't it? This level of, of surveillance. and Fabulous. You can make it grippingly successful and uh, suspenseful, and you're not making it up. I mean, this technology has this potential. Yeah. I, I'm just wondering whether this element of the, of the book is um, accurate. The president says, often in the book, um, there's this idea that some novels and movies uh, get it very wrong. So I think a few paragraphs start with the idea, unlike what the bad novels and worse movies portray, this, that or the other. One of the things you mention is, despite the self-serving stories from presidential aides or what happens in popular movies, there aren't that many presidential decisions that are truly life or death. In fact, most presidential decisions are already made by the time um, a memorandum or order comes to one's desk. Decisions are made in work sessions, cabinet meetings and on Capitol Hill. So that so when they get there, they're, they're almost perfunctory. Is that the case? Yes. And I plead guilty to being responsible for some of that material in the book. But it's also, that is, I used to get decision memos. And the decision memos would have gone through all my staff and cabinet work and consulting with Congress. And if they were let's say a page long or less, and you say yes or no, unless I had reason to question it, a real reason, I would normally approve them fairly quickly. On the other hand, one of the great tests in this environment is what decisions you actually bring to the president when only the president can make them and there's still something to be decided. And how you decide those can determine your entire presidency. So I, I don't want to minimize the fact that while the president may make 50 decisions a day, maybe 47 of them were cooked well and aren't that big a deal. But one of the tests of being a leader of a country is knowing which are the three in the list of 50 that you need to make, that you need to know more about, that something else needs to be considered. I am going to uh, reluctantly hand over, not because they're not brilliant questions, just because I would have so many more of my own, to the audience questions. And um, I'll just start off with a question. They ask, what made you choose to begin this whole new story uh, with this book rather than um, to follow on from The President is Missing? Well, a, a little piece of it is that we wanted to deal with the former president. We, we had that as, as one of the things that we wanted to do. And um, that was a little trickier with, uh, with Duncan, the, the president in the first book. But also it was important in this book that the president have a military background in terms of the story that we thought we wanted to tell. That was, that was a really important. So we had to change presidents. And I think it's, it's kind of cool. And it was fresh and uh, I, I, I liked sort of starting from scratch with the president. Somebody asks, and I'd love to hear this from both of you, I think, to be fair, whether you disagreed profoundly over any aspects of the novel um, and whose judgment prevailed. No. We agreed on the outline at first, and we had some discussions about that. And then there were only a couple of times when, I'll just give you an example where I would say, look, we are not closing the loop on this storyline, I think, in a credible way. I think we got to do this. And then he said, I agree with you. We haven't done that. And then he came up with a better way to close it than I did. And if you don't have any ego invested, you're just trying to tell a story as well and fully as you can. And you agree on the end. 
then it sort of fell naturally. I think that's an honest. Yeah, no, I, I, we, we've never fought, and, and there's always been, which I think is the key thing, mutual respect, and then we listen. We've we've disagreed in golf. I remember one time he said he had a birdie, and I think it was a par, but that's, <laughs> that's, that's the closest we've come to a disagreement. Better than I am. I have to fudge the truth to avoid totally. Yeah, my wife's better than both of us, so, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Um, I, I think that um, Hillary is writing her own thriller. Is that right? And somebody was wondering if um, how that makes you feel. Our friend Louise Penny, who I think is a fabulous mystery writer and has created an amazing character and setting and uh, gamache and three pines, asked her to do it. It was her idea, and and Hillary thought it would be interesting. And they've got their book and. Jim and I hope we can beat him, but I told Jim it's going to be a stretch. I've read the book and it's good. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's 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 they're terrific, and Hillary has a big advantage because she's working with Louise, and President Clinton has to work with me. So, but uh, I, they're they're going to do well. I, I've read it too. It's a, it's a really good book. And um, somebody asks of all the fictional, but well, hear this from both of you, if possible, of all the fictional U.S. presidents in literature, movies, and TV shows, which one is your favorite? They say, personally, I'm very fond of Bill Pullman in Independence Day. I like Bill Pullman. Uh, I like Tony Goldwyn in uh, Scandal because he really tries to be a three-dimensional character. And uh, so I thought I thought he was very good. My favorite, I've, I've liked a couple of the people who played FDR, but I think Daniel Day-Lewis and Lincoln was good because he made it thrilling and noble to be a canny, calculating politician. Lincoln's last great effort was to pass the 13th Amendment, ending slavery, and he made all kinds of deals to do it, which standing alone may look unsavory, but he took the system he had and what would work, and he made it work for a noble end. And I think that was important. Spielberg didn't try to paint him as a saint. He tried to paint him as a brilliant, passionately committed political leader, and he did it. And I think that it's it's important that we honor the practice of politics instead of saying there's something wrong with it. We have a screenplay going on. The president is missing, and so I'm hoping President Duncan will be my favorite president um, until that comes out. I'm, I'm a, a kind of a Martin Sheen, and you know the president had an interesting, very good storyteller. The president, our president, President Clinton, and um, he said that the, they were very smart in, in, in the West Wing because they surrounded him with this entourage of people. So it became easy to tell kind of realistic stories because they had so many places they could go with the story. And then if you don't, it gets harder if, if you don't have that, if you don't have places to go. In our story, you know, we have, we have you know, villains to visit and, and uh, you know, collaborators and whatever. So we have places to go other than just, just President Keating, which is important. I should have said Martin Sheen too. He was great, but he also it was easier to make him great as well as human, because not every story and every scene was about him. It showed yeah. you the the milieu in which he was functioning. Uh, you you mentioned um, the film version is being made of the president is missing. When you're writing these very fast paced zippy thrillers. I mean, the audiobook version is almost as good as a film in itself. It's such an extraordinary um, listen. But when you're writing these thrillers together, do you um, imagine or hope that they're going to be turned into uh, into films, into movies? Uh, uh, yeah, that, that's always great. We, uh, we both love movies. Uh, we don't write them for film. I mean, that's not what we're thinking about. I, you know, I don't think either one of us. We, we write them as books. Well, first, uh, you, you hope it'll do. Yes, you I, I did hope that one or both of these books would become a movie. And then you hope you hope like crazy that it'll be a good movie and you fear that it won't. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there's a, you know, because movies are, read a movie script. One of my favorite scripts is High Noon. It's very spare. And you can read the script and then imagine how it gets put on the movie. It's a whole different art form. And it's it's difficult to capture what's in a book and a movie, just as it's more powerful to see something sometimes than to read it. And, and, and ultimately, I mean, for it to succeed, there have to be all these collaborations at work and there has to be all this chemistry that works. 
So it's it's hard for a movie to succeed. I mentioned the audio book, which is a, a, a fantastic piece of listening. Um, and uh, somebody was asking whether you made a conscious decision to use uh, multiple voices in that instead of a single narrator, because it, as I say, comes together like a drama. Was that anything you were involved in? Well, a, a little bit, but I mean, because they knew that this would be, a, you know, or hoped it would be very successful, they were willing maybe to spend a little bit more money on the audio book, honestly. That's, so they'll, they'll go out and they'll get a few more. Uh, I've just done a, actually a couple of podcasts. I uh, did one with John Lithgow and, and four or five other really good actors. Uh, and that, that's an interesting area, the, the whole... You know, it's sort of like the old radio dramas, only produced a little better. Uh, and, and that's a lot of fun, too. President Clinton, somebody was asking whether um, reading a particular book ever influenced or changed a big decision that you made as president. The short answer to that is no. But the books that I read, even books I read as a young person, affected what mattered to me most as president. For example... I was deeply influenced by Max Weber's politics as a vocation. He was a conservative Christian Democrat, and he wrote this book at the uh, end of World War I in 1918. And he said that anyone who goes into politics or otherwise exercises power over other people's lives, by definition, puts his own soul at risk. Because you're imperfect, you can't be right all the time and the consequences may be entirely different than you intended. And it was an argument for, not for shying away from politics, but for embracing the vocation with a constant sense of humility. That made a huge impact on me. And it, uh, I was influenced by that. I was influenced by any number of black writers uh, on race, which made me think that my big purpose in politics had to to advance us all together. The one thing that, that has been relevant lately is that uh, when I was president, I read Richard Preston's novels, including The Hot Zone, and I became aware of the potential for sparking chemical and biological disasters with, along with technological development. And that led me to convening a whole set of meetings and setting up the first stockpile of vaccines and other things to handle pandemics that were either naturally caused or man-made. And that stockpile uh, grew over time. And then people got a little careless because we didn't have anything bad happen for a long time. But we needed it and we needed more of it when the COVID broke out because it was just a matter of time. It was obvious to me in the 1990s, it was just a matter of time. So I was obsessed with that. Now, that's one book that I read that actually did affect policy. James, was there a particular book that influenced you before you became a writer? Uh, I, I think what yeah, I was a, a PhD candidate at Vanderbilt and uh, literary snob, and I read Day of the Jackal somewhere in there, and I went, hmm, this is kind of interesting. <laughs> Maybe I like uh, you know pop oilers more than I thought I did. So that had uh, I, I thought it was a wonderful uh, and, and, and way ahead of its time. So that that was something that that influenced me in terms of you know where what I wound up doing. Just to finish off, you don't have to answer this, President Clinton. I've had a number of people are asking about your bracelet and commenting on it and wondering what the significance is. <laughs> yes, it's rather tacky, but it's very important. It's, it's, I've, I've worn this uh, on June the 28th of this month, this month. I will have worn this bracelet for 19 years. I've never taken it off. It's a welcome bracelet woven by a native uh, Indian from Colombia. And originally, it was red, blue, and yellow, the colors of the Colombian flag. I, I got it when I went to Colombia in 2002 to urge the business community there, the Americans and others, not to give up on Colombia in the face of the narco-trafficking and all the gangs and, the, and all the 
violence that was going on because we were trying to turn it around. And one president was leaving office, the other coming in, and they knew President Bush was then preoccupied with Afghanistan and Osama bin Laden because it was shortly after 9-11. And I said, I will go, but I want you to bring the children to see me. And they knew what I meant. There's a group of children in Columbia that's singing for peace. And I had met them when I was president. And they showed up. And when I came down the stairs, the new culture minister, who was their sponsor, was 29 years old. And she, her predecessor, was a very good friend of mine. And she had been kidnapped and murdered because they they hated these kids. And she was the symbol of it. And this woman bravely took her place. And then the, the native Colombian gave me this bracelet. And he said, in our culture, you're supposed to wear it till it wears off. Well, I wear this every day to remind me that I never have a bad day and that somebody's always having it tougher and that you should never give in. I'm very glad that the audience spotted it and, and sought to ask the question to bring out such a good story. Um, and unfortunately, the hour has whizzed by and I know that um, there are other things to get to. But thank you both very, very much indeed for giving us your time this evening. And thank you so much to everyone who's signed in as well um, from the How To Academy. Of Great. Well, thank you. We hope to be in, in England soon. I very much hope so too. I hope you enjoy the book. We did our best. Thank you. This week's podcast starred Bill Clinton and James Patterson. The host was Hannah McInnes, and the producers were Dana Outcult and me. We have some amazing political guests coming up this summer, including David Miliband, Marianne Seacott, Gordon Brown, and many more. You can attend all of those live stream events for free when you join our subscription service, HowTo Plus. You can find out more on our website. Until next week, stay safe and thanks for listening.